Hey everybody, I'm Eric. And I'm Sean. And we're the Verta Guys. We're checking out the dark side of DC. We are here to recap and review Vertigo comics, starting with the big three, Sandman, Hellblazer, and Preacher. And today we are looking at Preacher issues 27 and 28. This is a story arc called We Meet Amy. <laughs> I'm not going to make a joke here about a Britney Spears song because that song is gross. But... <laughs> I actually know what you're alluding to, and I agree. I agree with not making the the reference. Okay. So yeah, there's not really any formal title to this story arc, but these two issues do have a certain unity to them. They're kind of just one big issue, basically. Yeah, now what this arc is basically doing is catching our breath after Masada, which is sort of something we've been doing for a little while. We took a detour into Irish history for the last couple of Preacher episodes. Yeah, that's right. We took a breather after Masada, a two-issue arc for Cassidy to tell Jesse about his past, and now we're doing another two-issue arc to kind of reunite Cassidy and Jesse with Tulip. That's get right. The, get the band back together a little bit. And as I mentioned earlier, this is also the story arc where we meet Amy Grinderbinder. Is that her actual name? Yeah. Oh, okay. Who is going to be a... Somewhat important supporting character later on in the series. Oh, cool. Okay. Now, in terms of previously, I guess the main thing we need to cover is this. While they were riding to the rescue in France, Jesse and Tulip, that is, trying to rescue Cassidy from the arms of the Grail. Yeah. Or the clutches. Right. Jesse left Tulip behind in a hotel. Right. Disappeared without warning and went to rescue Cassidy by himself. Yeah. And he had basically promised not to do that. Yeah, he ditched her. Yeah, the other thing, uh, we're going to get a major turning point for the series in one way, at least a turning point for one of the major relationships of the series in this two-issue arc, but we will cross that bridge when we come to it. Okay. Okay, so Preacher number 7, Preacher number 27, I should say, Gun Chicks, was written by Garth Ennis. It features art by Steve Dillon. And a cover by Glenn Fabry. Colors are by Matt Hollingsworth. On this cover we have Tulip and a brunette together sipping a big fruity drink through straws. Yeah, they're sitting at a very small table drinking a very big drink. It's a pretty impressive cover. Yeah. Tulip has really big hair in this cover. Much bigger than in the actual series. Yeah, she kind of looks like Dolly Parton on this cover. Wow, yeah, she really looks a lot like Dolly Parton on this cover. So we open... In a taxi cab, and we see a San kind of over the shoulder of the cab, and we'll quickly find out that we're in San Francisco, and the taxi cab is blaring Crazy Crazy Nights by Kiss. This is from Kiss's 1987 album, Crazy Nights. And riding in the cab is Hair Star, who has recently become All Father Star. Yes, and he is also wearing a bunch of bandages on his forehead. Yeah, he's in a really foul mood, and as the cab driver waxes poetic about what a great city San Francisco is and how much he's going to love it, this town is just naturally happy, you know? Maybe it's something in the air, maybe it's the good people we got here, but this is a positive place, man. Hairstar gets fed up and engages in his old habit of firing guns in the enclosed space of cars. <laughs> yeah, that's true. He did that in, like, his first page, didn't he? Yeah. He shoots the radio, not the cabbie. Now shut up and drive the car, you unspeakable little turd. I get the feeling here. This is like so 
like 90s to me like 90s tough guy yeah fantasy of like oh wouldn't it be great to just pull out a gun and blow away the radio when an annoying song is on you know <laughs> I, I get the feeling that we're supposed to think that her star is just cool as hell in this page but i don't know he comes off actually as kind of a whiner he's kind of impatient and immature in his ways and I think that is something that's somewhat consistent with the character. I also gather from this scene that Garth Ennis may be not a huge fan of Kiss. Yeah, I think that's a reasonable inference. Meanwhile, in NYC, Jesse and Cassidy make their meeting with Tulip. Yeah, they're talking about how Jesse's just about to get goddamn killed for what he does. I'm sure she'll let you off with just a light maiming. Yeah, now this is actually basically the same night that he was doing his whole flashback. Because Jesse was going to meet Tulip later. That's right. And he's expecting a very confrontational reunion. But instead, Tulip jumps into his arms. Right. She plants one right on him. And when they come up for air, she says, I missed you. She also kisses Cassidy on the cheek and says, thanks for saving my life, Irish. Also makes a possible Jimi Hendrix reference here. Oh, yes. As she parts from Jesse, she says, excuse me while I kiss this guy. A well-known Mondegreen for Jimi Hendrix. So they hurry off to the hotel room and arrange to meet Cassidy later at the Irish pub. Right. Back in the hotel room, Tulip has new slinky things. That's a big callback. That's a reference to like five or seven issues ago, right? Yeah, when they were in the hotels in France, I think. Yeah, she bought slinky things, which is to say lingerie, yeah. in Paris... And she had to leave it in the car that got blown up or something like that? That's right. They were destroyed in the Grail attack, I think. But yeah, she's she's wearing some very sexy-looking lingerie here. And she notices the scratch on Jesse's cheek, which is from his knife fight with Hair Star. Right. A few issues ago. But she pulls out some handcuffs, and Jesse gives a game expression. Right. He is less game when, once he is handcuffed to the headboard... Tulip takes her bra off, he's pretty down for that part, and then ties his mouth shut with it and runs off. I didn't know that you could do that with a bra. <laughs> but yeah, she says, Okay, I'm going to meet an old friend of mine. Hope you're nice and comfy. I'll be back later. Much later. Did you, like, really know where this was going, like, immediately? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> like, as soon as she pulls out the handcuffs, it's like, oh, yeah, she's going to fuck him over. Yeah, like, we're going to see the strength of this relationship and the strength of the devotion between them. I mean, we, we already have back in the Angelville arc. Yes. But Tulip also does not suffer insults lightly, particularly from Jesse. Yeah, I know it's a very hurtful thing that he did. Yeah. So we cut back to San Francisco, where Star is meeting with his sort of right-hand woman, Featherstone. Yeah, and they are in a really grungy-looking motel. It's a two-story affair with some kind of slime or decay in the corners of the ceiling. This will come up in a moment. Featherstone mentions that they still haven't heard from Hoover, the agent that Jesse brainwashed some time ago, and they assume that Jesse killed him. Yeah, we the readers will know that in fact Hoover was given the order to count grains of sand on a beach until he got to a million. That was several weeks ago. If he's still counting, he might be dead. Indeed. And that just reminds us once again that Preacher is not a super easy book to just jump into. Mm, this is true. Like, you really have to have read 
the entire series to read any part of it. There are no good jumping on points except for issue number one. <laughs> now, Featherstone asks what happened in Masada. Star recaps rather tersely. Oh, well, let me see. We had an angel, a whore, a eunuch, several dozen idiots, an unkillable mick, a one-man holocaust in a duster coat, the occasional twenty-course banquet for the mother of all fat fuckers, inbreeding, family feuds, bulimia, and the utter destruction of our most sacred shrine and secret retreat in the detonation of a fifty-ton bomb. All that is pretty accurate. So if that doesn't sell you on the last couple of issues, I don't know what will. <laughs> and we also had Jesse Custer. And so at this point, we see once again stars wounding at Jesse's hands as Jesse cuts a long slash down the center of his forehead. Yeah, across his scalp, actually. Hair star is bald. Yeah. And Jesse does the whole top of his head with a knife during their aforementioned knife fight. This is sort of alluded to that it was going to be a big deal when Tulip noticed the cut on his cheek and he said, uh, you should see the other guy. Anyway, now that he's all-father, Star demands a better hotel room. Don't tell me the budget's fucked as well. Not at all. I simply felt that after the gunfight at the Desaad Mansion, it might be best to maintain a low profile for a while. Horse shit. I want the Ritz, and if anyone complains about our profile, I'll phone Bill Clinton and have the fuckers shipped to some gulag in Alaska. You can do that kind of thing when you're all-father of the Grail. Featherstone is not really sure how this all-father thing happened, but we learn that she has been spreading the word through the Grail, and so far there are no challengers to Star's claim. The only witness to D'Aranique's demise was a helicopter pilot, who tragically jumped into his aircraft's rotor blades as soon as he landed. Grief, probably. D'Aranique being the previous all-father that Star killed during the Masada arc by having him dumped out of a helicopter. Yeah, the helicopter pilot was just obeying his orders, but he decided to kill him anyway. Seems that way. So... He's all-father and there's no challengers. Why is he so upset? Featherstone asks. Yeah, and we get a very effective three-panel sequence here where there's two beats of him looking contemplative, and then he responds, Is there a mirror in this hovel? It's probably worth noting that whatever Jesse's intentions, this is not the first disfiguring attack that Star has undergone. As in this panel, we can clearly see the five star-shaped lines radiating from his right eye. Yeah, wasn't he scarred in some way in his first encounter with the team as well? Tulip shot one of his ears off at the Desaad Mansion. Oh, that's right. So now we get Tulip and Amy reuniting. This is our first appearance of Amy. They're at a club, and they greet each other with a mutual shout of, Girlfriend! There's a rapid-fire exchange of information here. God, oh my god, oh my god. Two years! I can't believe it. Oh, you look so good. Oh, stop it. No, you do, you do. You've lost so much weight. Oh, you are such a liar. I am like a total blimp. Oh, bullshit. Oh, look at your hair. I knew you'd be great with long hair. Now, they both have pretty short hair, so I was confused by this for a minute until I remembered that Tulip used to have, like, very short hair. Like, extremely short hair. Like, page boy? Yeah. Okay. Well, they call for the barman, and here they order two Nagasaki airbursts, plenty of fallout. Now, I looked into this. Incidentally, that is, of course, a rather frivolous reference to a rather serious historical event. Indeed. The only recipe I was able to find for a Nagasaki airburst is tequila on the rocks with fresh ground black pepper. Fallout presumably referring to black pepper. Oh, okay. From the frivolity of it, I assumed that it was going to be a, a pretty fruity sweet drink, but that's actually pretty hardcore. 
Not like the one on the cover. Oh, yeah, that's true. I guess Glenn Fabry must have made the same assumption. Well, what they're drinking on the next page has lemons coming out of it, though. So that's not what they have. Oh, yeah. They're drinking some kind of electric blue lemonade or something. Well, after the greetings, Amy asks if she found him, meaning Jesse. They immediately decide to fail the Bechdel test and go over Tulip's relationship status. Yeah, I like the line here. Long story, he's kind of a traveling preacher now. Like, absolutely accurate and absolutely unhelpful. <laughs> yeah, Tulip confesses that she's trying to find a reason not to dump his lying, scheming, worthless ass. Amy jumps in here to defend Jesse. Really? I mean, what did he do? Oh, I'm exaggerating, but it's like this is even worse than last time, you know? When he left me in Phoenix, he had an excuse for that, but this... We were in some trouble, okay? So he made sure I was nice and safe, and then he sneaked off and took care of business himself. He couldn't even trust me to watch my own ass. I felt like such a handicap. But, Amy points out, this being Jesse, you can't really be surprised, and it's not like he did it to spite you. Tulip admits that she's having a hard time staying mad at Jesse, but still she's genuinely hurt by what he did. Yeah, and here we get the second allusion that we've seen to Tulip's father. Right, they mention here that the only man they've ever heard of as good as Jesse is Tulip's dad. Tulip's dad was mentioned earlier when she killed a bunch of grail goons at Desaad's party, and she said, thanks, dad. Right, we understand that he raised her with guns and taught her to shoot. Right. Now, this is not the first time in this short scene that Amy has mentioned that Jesse is a very good prospect. Right off the bat, she said, I have to admit the idea of Jesse floating around on his own, all kind of, well, available, is one that appeals to me. Yeah, and she ends the page by saying, I would pay money for a chance to jump your boyfriend's bones, and I'm telling you, give him another chance. Please. Yeah, so the idea that Amy has an interest in Jesse is going to come back a couple of times over this issue, and it sets up an important counterpoint for stuff that's going to come up in a few pages. Amy starts talking about her own love life. She just broke up with a writer named Nigel. Turns out that he asked her lots of intimate stuff about what it's like being a woman and then put it in a trashy, misogynistic horror novel. Her words. Never date writers, honey. Writers suck. Now we get a full page of Hair Star looking in the mirror. It's not a full page spread. It's broken up into nine panels. Oh, this is actually a nine panel page of Star staring at a mirror for nine panels. Yeah, so definitely conveying that he's been looking for a long time, and in the last panel, he says, Shit. We rejoin Tulip and Amy in a hotel room. We learn that Amy is a teacher, and she apparently has something of a side job selling Tulip guns. I don't think that this is a hotel. Does Amy live in this area? Yeah, she talks about cheap rent, and she knows that no one will care about the gunshots. So I think this must be her place. Oh, cool. She works for a black market gun dealer. Tulip takes an interest in the Desert Eagle. From the country that brought you the Uzi. You want it in 357 or 44? I read you can get them in 50. You are your father's daughter, babe. So they go up on the roof to shoot. The cool thing about living here is you can shoot all you want and there's nothing to hit out there except the East River. What about cops? They won't care about a few gunshots. Just as long as we don't break out the Tech 9s. I can't tell if that's racist or just morbid. I think it's just morbid. Okay. I think she's comparing semi-automatic gunfire to automatic gunfire. Right. So it's just that it's such a bad neighborhood that... Right. That you have to go full auto to attract attention. Yeah, something like that. 
Tulip takes some practice shots and nails all the bottles. We hadn't mentioned any bottles before. I just assumed that people would know about bottles. That's what you shoot when you practice with a gun. <laughs> Did you ever read Winter's Bone? I never read it. I think I saw the film. I don't remember if this is in the movie or not, but when she starts teaching her younger brother and sister, I think she has a younger brother and a sister, if I remember right. Maybe it's two younger brothers. Anyway, when she decides it's time for them to learn to shoot, she tells them never practice with glass because mm -hmm. she'll be digging it out of their feet all summer. Okay. So they, they're only allowed to practice on plastic bottles and tin cans. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah, aluminum cans are also a solid choice. People generally, I think, use bottles or cans, which is, you know, a process that involves drinking a lot of beer before you begin shooting. But this is establishing something that we have seen before, just reminding us that Tulip is an ace shop. Yeah, and we see that Amy is pretty good as well, as she points a dirty, hairy-style three fifty-seven Magnum and takes out a few bottles of her own. Yeah, and then Amy starts chasing Tulip with sausage fingers. Yeah. The less said about that, the better. <laughs> Tulip goes by the Irish pub. She is now without Amy. Yeah, it seems like a coincidence. She seems to notice the pub as she happens to be driving by it and decide to stop in. Tulip orders a club soda for herself and a beer for Cassidy, who is face down on the bar. We learn that all night Cassidy has been getting up and singing Pogue songs, which has driven everyone else out of the bar. We're a wee bit maudlin, you see. Cassidy is generally sentimental and depressed, amplified by alcohol. He mentions that he's not as resistant to drink as he usually is because he's still healing up from his torture in Masada. Possible that his maudlin is also amplified by his recent two-issue flashback to basically all of his friends in his first 90 years in America dying. Ah, it's the drink. I get all depressed and sentimental and generally fucked off at things. Love of a good woman, that's what you need. You don't want the job, do you? <laughs> right. Seriously. At this point, Cassidy goes motormouth, confessing that he loves Tulip like he's never loved anyone. That's why he saved her life at Desaad's party. I'm sorry, I'm really sorry, but you don't understand. You're beautiful, you're so beautiful, and when you kissed me earlier on there, I mean, I felt like this for ages. I mean, I saved your life, you know, I saved your life. I know, and I'm grateful, but aren't you forgetting someone? Well... He left you on your own in the middle of France. And at that, she gets up and walks. Good night. Smooth. Fuck off. Uh, it's also worth noting here that Cassidy puts a hand on Tulip to try to stop her walking away, and she says, Hey! And he backs off. Yeah, and face palms. Yeah, she does not take that crap. Tulip returns to the hotel room and liberates Jesse. He's going on a rant about how wrong it was for her to... Leave him all tied up like that. But she just says, shut up and hold me. I guess that sounds like a plan. And her face in this last panel is just uh, such such great emotion in that. And that's, that's a solid way to end the issue. All right, that brings us to Preacher number 28, Rumors of War. The title here is from Matthew chapter 24, verse 6. It's part of the... Olivet Discourse, which is also called The Little Apocalypse. Okay. It's a section of apocalyptic material that's contained in, I think, three out of the four Gospels. Mm -hmm. In context, that's, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. 
This issue is written by Garth Ennis with art by Steve Dillon and colors by Matt Hollingsworth. Now, what verse of the good book does the word gun chicks appear in? <laughs> They're all scripture quotes, right? Uh, Acts of the Apostles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, on the cover here we have Jesse trying to restrain a furious Cassidy who is choking a guy who has sort of a comical strangled expression on his face. <laughs> yeah, his tongue's sticking out. And because this is a phenomenon that has occurred a few times in Glenn Favre covers, I want to point out that this cross-eyed guy in the background looks kind of like the shirt he is wearing. <laughs> yeah, that's true. There's a dude in red, and he has the most goofball-ass expression on his face. We open on Cassidy waking up in what looks to be the back of the bar. Yeah, he's in a room full of kegs. A dark room full of kegs. And as he realizes what he did and said last night... Oh my god, I'm a wanker! I'm a wanker! I'm the biggest wanker in the entire world! But we get that last line over a long shot of the New York City skyline, followed by our title. Back at the hotel room, sometime later, we find Jesse and Tulip, more or less, where we left them. You know what the worst thing about it was? What was the worst thing, baby? It reminded me of when I was eight and the boys wouldn't let me play soldiers. I mean, I had more issues as Sergeant Rock than any of them, and I knew all the lines of Battle of the Bulge off by heart. But oh no, you can't play. You're a girl. We actually mentioned Sergeant Rock in our last episode. Oh, that's true. The Christmas Sergeant Rock story by Tom King. Yeah. Now, Sergeant Rock was more or less DC's answer to Nick Fury. You could say that. I couldn't tell you which one was first. Yeah, I couldn't tell you either. But it's one of those phenomena where, you know, kind of both companies have equivalent characters. Like the Flash and Quicksilver Mm -hmm. or... Dr. Polaris and Magneto, mm. or Spider-Man and Sideways. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> Talking shit about Sideways. <laughs> Fucking terrible comic book. The character is not actually named Sideways, right? The book is Sideways. No, that's his superhero name as well. Oh, I thought, the, I thought his name was Rift. Okay. I don't think so. I think it's Sideways. Okay. They are, needless to say, talking about Jesse leaving Tulip in France, not about the thing that happened last night, which has not been discussed at this time. Right. She hasn't told him, which is something she'll go into later. Jesse asks why she wanted to play with boys' stuff in the first place, and she says, Remind me why I have sex with you again. Jesse says that he's constantly reevaluating his approach to gender issues, and he apologizes honestly for France. You don't trust me. You treated me like a little girl from start to finish. If you ever do anything like this to me again, I swear to you, we are through. Jesse promises to always trust Tulip, telling her that she's more important to him than his mission or even his honor. I will always trust you. Yeah? You got my word. That's all I needed to hear. How long am I going to love you, girl? Until the end of the world? Aw, what a cute exchange of dialogue between them there. And then they uh, (laughs) have an embrace with each of them holding a cigarette behind the other one's back. So there's two, like, trails of smoke coming off them. Flumes of smoke. Yeah. Yeah, and it's nice to see them sort of honestly and respectfully discuss their issues as well. Speaking of honesty, Jesse asks, What were you so upset about when you got back this morning? And Tulip says, It was just, you know, I guess I thought enough was enough. Like, cuffing you to the bed and leaving you was a great idea, but actually going through with it got harder and harder to do. So she makes an excuse here to avoid telling him about Cassidy. Yeah, and that's kind of heartbreaking. He promises to always trust her, and she immediately lies to him. 
So what have you been up to since you got into town? Tulip asks. Hanging out with Cass, mostly. I tell you, seeing him kind of growing back together, that was some crazy shit. And he told me his life story, which was sort of like if Brendan Behan fucked a Bram Stoker and they let the baby do crack all the time. He did a real nice thing, too. You know what he said to me? What? Said he was going to stick by me. He's going to stay around until this thing gets done. And as Jesse says this, we are in a close-up on Tulip's face as her eyes narrow. It's a nice panel. Yeah, good job. Jesse asks what Tulip did last night. And when she mentions Amy, he remembers that he doesn't feel safe around her lecherous looks. Oh, Jesus, Tulip, you gotta protect me from her. Don't leave me alone with her. I don't like how she looks at me. Bullshit, you love it. And I've seen you. You always flirt right back with her, you slut. That's Tulip. Then I guess it's up to you to keep me interested. I guess it is. She brandishes the handcuffs. Trust me? And Jesse once again gives a game expression. Exact same thing. Just walks right out. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. But I, I do like that this scene ends with trust me after he made the promise that he would always trust her from now on. Yeah. So we cut to Hairstar and Featherstone. She has procured some hats and some wigs. Right, which brings us to nine panels of wigs. Hairstar looking in the mirror for nine panels, trying on different wigs. I thought that one, three, and eight looked passable. Yeah, I don't know what's wrong with one. I should mention here that among the wigs are all three Stooges, Elvis, and Princess Leia. <laughs> yeah, looking at the Princess Leia one, he says, Plan B. Now we come to kind of a weird page. I wasn't entirely certain what the point of this one was. Jesse is sitting alone in the Museum of Modern Art, and he is admiring Andrew Wyeth's painting, Christina's World. Now, Christina's World just happens to be the inspiration for an album cover by one of my favorite artists, which is Kathleen Edwards' album, Back to Me. All right. You see sort of this image reproduced in a photograph. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what Christina's World looks like for those who have not immediately Googled it? Yeah, so it's basically a young woman lying in a field mm -hmm. looking back at a house that's off in the distance and there's a suggestion that she may be immobile so i have a couple of thoughts here and it's very possible this is setting something up that i don't know about yet i will recall that his mother is christina langell maybe he's thinking about her it's also you know kind of a gender roles in western milieu kind of thing oh yeah that's an interesting point the idea of, like, an iconic piece of Western American art from a woman's point of view mm -hmm. is sort of what's got him thinking here. There's also a little scene here as a museum attendant tells him there's no smoking allowed, and he orders him to change his mind. Using the word of God. The word of God is Jesse's superpower. He doesn't use it in nearly every issue, but it basically makes it impossible to refuse commands from him if you can understand them. Right, as long as you can hear and understand. And the museum attendant indeed changes his mind. New policy, folks. Cigarettes are now positively encouraged in the museum. Feel free to light on up. Smoke them if you got them. <laughs> yeah, apparently everybody else in the museum was just <laughs> waiting for that. Yeah, I kind of... That's the comic kind of showing its age a little bit. Yeah, I kind of cringed at this because cigarette smoke is obviously going to be really bad for the paintings. Yeah. Meanwhile, Tulip meets up with Amy again. Hey, Annie Oakley. Nice place you picked. 
Tulip responds, this is where the boys drink. Kershey orders her second club soda in two issues, and it made me want to look back to remember if she had actually drunk alcohol on panel. Yeah, I also had to look back to see if this bartender was the same guy, because they're both sort of ruddy-looking fellas in orange shirts, but this guy has a mustache, and the bartender who was serving Cassidy the night before did not. Which means he might be a serial killer. Oh, yeah. Also, what if it is the same dude and he can just grow a mustache that fast? <laughs> oh, that's right. He's been on shift for more than 12 hours and the mustache has come in. <laughs> so Tulip tells Amy what Cassidy did the night before by confessing his love. She also says that she hasn't told Jesse yet. It would fuck him up totally. He trusts Cassidy. He really likes him. It's cast this, cast that. I mean, I liked him too. I thought he was a real clown, but fun to have around, you know? But Jesse thinks the guy shits gold. Honestly, Amy, it'd wreck everything. Tulip has an interesting line here, too. Talking about how Jesse makes such a big deal about honor and loyalty. I mean, it's a very guy thing to do. I guess it's a girl thing, too, but we don't have to turn everything into an ideal. We just get on with it. Amy responds, we don't read enough Hemingway. Yeah, I wasn't so sure about this, like, you know, a male writer writing female dialogue in which they hold forth on the differences between the genders. That bothered you? It just doesn't strike me as very realistic. In the sense that it's too straightforward, too obvious, or did it seem... It just doesn't seem to me like the kind of things that women would, real women would actually say. Okay, okay. I think for the most part, Garth Ennis does a pretty good job in these two issues of showing these two women having a strong friendship, a strong relationship between them, and having deep inner lives to themselves as well. Yeah, that's true. It's just when they start talking about, like, what men are like versus what women are like that it seems, I don't know, he kind of seems to lose his footing a little bit. And you think maybe he puts his own feelings on the difference between the sexes in Tulip's mouth here a little bit? Could be. Okay. Anyway, Tulip thinks that Jesse thinks that Cassidy lives up to his standards of honor. He should have heard the shit the prick was coming out with last night. Guys just don't get it, Amy responds. You can't really know anyone until you see how they act trying to get in your pants. What are you going to do, babe? I don't have the slightest idea. Jesse and Cassidy join them in the bar. What did I tell you about talking to sinners? He's got his hands over Amy's eyes here. Oh my god, it's him! She pulls Jesse into a big hug. It really is you. Oh my god, you really are a minister. I can't believe this. Why would you do this? What kind of church would have you? Church of protecting innocent southern boys from man-eating women. How the hell you been, girl? You said it, preacher. Sending my ass off. Yeah, so they immediately start flirting with each other. And then Jesse introduces her to Cassidy. How are you? Hello. Yeah, there's a lovely look between them here as well. JD and Ice, and a pitcher of Killian's, please, Martin. Amy asks if Jesse still dances. Tulip responds that he's been known to, and they run off to the dance floor, leaving Tulip and Cassidy alone. Cassidy opens with, I know! And he face palms again. He apologizes. He says he's quit drinking as of this morning. She points out that he just ordered drinks. Aye, but nobody quits straight away, do they? Tulip notes the promise that Cassidy made to Jesse. That was convenient, wasn't it? You're going to stay until he's finished the job. Well, well. I wonder what was going through your head when you made that little vow. Here, wait a minute. Cut the shit. It's not Jesse you're sticking by at all. 
Oh, that isn't it. Jesus. That you would even think that of me. I'm telling you, you've got to believe me. I'm not like that. Now, we cut to Jesse and Amy on the dance floor, and they're listening to the song Men Behind the Wire by the Barleycorns, which is a fairly obscure Irish rebel song. Right. Not something that Amy or Jesse is likely to have picked. Maybe more likely to be a pick by Cassidy or Garth Ennis. Right. But I guess I suppose this is supposed to be an Irish pub. That is true. As Jesse and Amy dance, Cassidy points out, Do you not think the two of them look a wee bit cozy? I know them. I trust them. Don't even try to change the subject, okay? Tulip admits that she told Amy Cassidy recognized the look. She had that you're the asshole trying to wreck my mate's relationship look on her face. I felt about two inches tall. She's my friend. I'll tell her whatever the fuck I want to, thanks. Besides, never mind about Amy. What you should be worrying about is what's going to happen if I tell Jesse. Oh, no. No, don't now. It'd fucking destroy him. Yeah, I know. It would absolutely break him in two, and that's the only thing stopping me from telling him. She goes on to accuse him, basically, of manipulating Jesse from the start. Yeah, she says that Jesse has never really had any close friends before. But you knew how to push all the right buttons with him right from the beginning, didn't you? Ah, oh, Tulip. I mean, you're making it sound like I planned this, like it was all calculated. I meant it when I made him that promise, because he saved me fucking life, and I'll never forget it. And with you, Jesus, I just got arseholed and made a dick of myself. There's nothing more to it than that. I love him like a brother, Tulip. I mean it. You'd fucking better. Now we cut to Hair Star, another nine-panel page of him looking in that mirror, and this time he's trying on hats. We've got derby, we've got Nazi helmet, bowler... The sort of leather motorcycle hat, just like the one Frank wears in Hellblazer. And a Russian fur hat. I think six and nine are both acceptable. <laughs> well, Star settles on number nine. He likes the look of a white Panama. Did you mention that one of them is a Nazi helmet and he says, Very funny, Featherstone? I <laughs> mentioned the helmet, but not the line. Now, we cut to the inside of a club where our group of heroes has apparently moved on to. Oh, hey, this is a different bar. Different bartender, different color walls, completely different. Cassidy here is teasing Jesse that he would get with Amy if he could. Just good friends. You would if you had the chance, but wouldn't you? Nope. Aye, right. Cass, how the fuck could I? Now, there are some rowdy teens a bit down the bar from them, and one knocks over Jesse's drink. But he immediately apologizes and sets about ordering a replacement. Oh, shit, shit, I'm sorry, dude. Let me get you another one. I see you do. It's cool, okay? I'm going to, right now. Don't fucking talk back to me, then. Get on with it. Chill, man. Jeez, can I get another... Prick. You little bollocks. You think you can just go around knocking people's drinks over? He's getting another. Yeah, like, what's your problem? Fucker! <laughs> it sort of switched characters in there. I know. <laughs> At this point, Cassidy's hand just bolts out and grabs the kid by the throat. Yeah, and, and lifts him way over his head like Darth Vader at the beginning of A New Hope. Cass, what the fuck are you doing? Let's see. Oh, my notes here say, read whole page. <laughs> Cassidy drops the guy and walks out with Jesse following. He was just incensed, Cassidy says, to see his good friend treated without respect. Jesus, Cass, the guy didn't do shit. Jesse reminds Cassidy, too, that he's super strong and could easily kill someone. I know. I know, I swear I fucking do. But you're me best mate, Jesse. I won't let anything happen to you. 
You're the best friend I've got in the entire fucking world. There's a couple of really interesting interactions between Jesse and Cassidy in this scene. First, as he's sort of encouraging Jesse, hey, you would, you know, you would get with another girl if you had the chance, right? And then as he sort of overcompensates with this extreme show of loyalty. Yeah, and uh, as he says his last line that I just read, he pulls Jesse into an embrace and we get Jesse's reaction looking very concerned. Right. So, I mean, I guess the question here is, and I think that you, having finished the series, you have some knowledge that I don't have here, but do we read this as Cassidy overcompensating out of genuine guilt or do we read this as Cassidy playing on Jesse in a very calculated way. He knows that sort of a male brotherly loyalty is something that Jesse responds to. I think it's difficult to see it as the latter, because if it's a manipulation, it's not a very good one. Jesse is obviously more disturbed than reassured. This is true. By this conversation. I think if if he's trying to manipulate anyone, it's himself. Okay. Cassidy is trying to sell himself on this bond between them. On this idea that he has this reflexive bond of loyalty, that he reacts that strongly. Right. Elsewhere, Tulip thanks Amy for the chance to talk to Cassidy alone, but she doesn't know if it worked. Now, they're at some kind of very nice restaurant here. The decor is very posh and modern. We've got waiters in white suits with black bow ties, and they seem to be drinking fancy cocktails. Amy asks where next, and Tulip says they're headed out west. Well, you've got my number. You remember, girlfriend, if the shit ever hits the fan, no matter where you are or what kind of trouble you're in, you call me. I'll come running. So they part. As Amy catches her cab, she asks one more time if Tulip should tell Jesse. It's just, I mean, in my experience, if everyone's cool like that and then something like this happens, things can never be the same again. Star and Featherstone are leaving their motel in San Francisco. We can never see did get a better motel. No, but we can see that he has now decided on the ninth hat. Yeah. Which is a white fedora with a red band around it, sort of matching the grail uniform. I feel like it's a hat that's worn by somebody in some movie, but I can't call it. Yeah, I'm not sure either. And now Star swears to get Jesse Custer. Featherstone reminds him that Jesse is key to his plans for the grail. Isn't he a little important for you to be taking this so personally? He's made my head look like a gigantic penis, Featherstone. I'll take it as personally as I fucking well like. From this moment on, I will dedicate my life to hunting that bastard down. I will find him, I will break him, I will present him to humanity as the new messiah and thereby save this world, and then I will crucify him. And I swear to God, I'll hammer in the nails myself. I can kind of see where they're going with the looks like a gigantic penis thing, but it wouldn't have occurred to me if nobody had mentioned it. Yeah. He should just do another one like the other way, and then it'll look like a screwdriver. <laughs> a Phillips head screwdriver? Well, I guess it'll look like a screw. Yeah. That's not really better. Looks like Veroni Kenshin. Not really at all, though. We get one more page. Yeah. The you... Saint of Killers. The Ruins of Masada, where a dark figure in a long duster rises from the ashes. War it is. Alright, so thoughts, concerns, similes? Like you said, that was kind of a breather. But it also sort of deftly handles the relationships between these three characters. Which, as that is sort of the central theme of this book, makes it, you know, kind of a great episode in the overall story of the series. 
Yeah, we have obviously one big sort of game-changing event here. I assume the one you were talking about is Cassidy making his confession to Tulip. Yeah, that's right. And that's not something that's going to go away. Let me just leave it at that. That's something that was called out explicitly in dialogue, in fact. That's something that's going to change the relationship between the three of them permanently. Yeah, that's right. And I have to say, I mean, we've talked before about how the breather issues of Preacher give us a stronger appreciation for the characters going into action. I also just think they're all three really well-realized characters, and it's a joy to read the interactions between them. Yeah, I agree. This is really great stuff. What did you think about the Hair Star B-plot? I've mentioned before that Hair Star walks a strange line between big bad and comic relief in this series. Yeah, that's that's for sure true. I, I think there's already kind of a running gag of Star being something of a butt monkey. <laughs> yeah. I think my big problem with it is, well, first of all, it just kind of seems a little silly that, you know, we got Tulip getting ready to hit the road after her reunion with Amy and... You know, they share these parting words, and then we cut to Featherstone and Hare Star leaving their motel as if they've been through something of similar gravity, when <laughs> all that happened is that he picked out a hat. <laughs> I also have a problem with the fact that the Hare Star plot doesn't really play very well in one issue. It runs across both. Okay, um, so your feeling is that the comedy and maybe the gravity as well would land a little better if it was all in one issue? Yeah, because, I mean, these two issues are basically just one super long issue, and reading it month to month on the newsstands, I just can't help but feel like it would have been really hard to to get the full effect of this. Like, the first nine panel page is a sort of a truncated setup, and then the other two instances are kind of a headless joke. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. I think the key thing, I mean, there's not a lot of development here for a star, that's true. The key thing that we need to walk away from this story with is that his perspective on Jesse has fundamentally changed. That it is personal for him now, and that he's out to destroy Jesse as much as to use him. Yeah, and the Grail has changed as a threat. The nature of it has changed entirely from when it was being run by Dearonique. Yeah. What did you think about Amy as a character? I like Amy. I don't think perhaps that she's quite as complex as the three main characters, but I think that she's definitely got her own life. She's got things going on. She's got thoughts of her own. I think, you know, she certainly fills the role of Tulip's friend, but also rises above the sort of the bare minimum requirement for that. Yeah, she definitely has thoughts and opinions. They tend to line up with Tulip's pretty well, but... Yeah. I do want to point out, I think the Amy-Jesse flirtation provides a really interesting counterpoint, and it's basically called out as such in the text, with the friction that suddenly appears between Cassidy and Tulip, that, as it's pointed out, Jesse, Tulip, and Amy have known each other for a while, and they have this flirtation going on, and it's okay with Tulip because she trusts them. Yeah, we're going to get more of Amy in the Preacher special. Tall in the saddle? Does that make Amy a character from Jesse and Tulip's bad old days? Yes. Okay. Cool. Yeah, it's a fun story. Well, now it's time for a segment I like to call Hey Sean, Read This, 
where I blindside Sean with a more recent Vertigo comic. This is undoubtedly the most surprising A Sean since the first one. This week, Sean is going to be reading Deathbed Number 1. It's brand new from Vertigo Comics, written by Joshua Williamson. He's the writer on The Flash, I think, with art by Riley Rossmo, the guy who drew the uh, Batman The Shadow miniseries. Also a former Hellblazer artist, Riley Rossmo. Cool. This is a weird fucking book. At first I thought it was going to be a comic adaptation of Jason Robard's story from Magnolia. Then I thought it was going to be about a bed that killed people. It is not about either of those things. No. It seems to be about an adventurer named Antonio Luna, who, through deception, ropes a writer named Valentine Richards into coming along with him on his adventures. Right. We open with Luna as an infant, and his father tells him he's going to be the greatest man who ever lived, and then we see that they live in a haunted swamp. Then we meet this Richards person. She's a down-on-her-luck writer. She gets hired to ghostwrite his memoirs, which is something she's apparently done for people before. Mm-hmm. I don't mean to be a prude, but it seems like the woman on the phone on the toilet thing is such convenient shorthand for... Women are people, too, and sometimes they're poor. I'm getting a little tired of seeing it. Okay. On the subject of you being a prude, we also see the guy's uh, winger-wanger-dinger-donger. Yeah. In this issue. Yeah, that didn't bother me as much. I don't know what kind of a prude that makes me. I'm <laughs> sure there's something wrong with it. <laughs> yeah, so she goes to his deathbed, where he begins to talk about how great he is and why she should want to tell his story. And at this point, the room fills up with gargoyles, mummies, and lizard men. All come to kill him, and then he he explains, you see, that he has wanted everyone to know that he's sick and dying so that the room would fill up with mummy assassins, and he bursts out of bed stark naked and kills them all. Well, he's not stark naked. He's wearing a utility belt. <laughs> Thank you for that distinction. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you had to fight a bunch of undead mummies, you know, I think that distinction would matter to you as well. Gonna need that reload. Okay, so they are basically going to go on adventures together, he wants to make sure that his story is told and right. And she, well, basically she feels alive for the first time in a very long time when she sees him fuck up all those mummy men. And, <laughs> and so she tags along. <laughs> yes. So, Sean, are you going to read issue number two of Deathbed? I don't know. <laughs> It's a, it's a weird comic book. I, I'm not sure that I like either of the characters, but I will give them this. That the reason that I don't like them is that they're weird and unpleasant, but they're uncompromising in a way. The comic doesn't dislike them. They just are weird. Okay. So that's a plus in my book. What do you think of Riley Rossmo's art? Have you read a lot of books with Riley Rossmo art in them before? No, I can't say that I have. I think he does a good job with all of the, like, monsters and stuff that we see in here. Luna certainly strikes an imposing profile as well, even when he puts pants on later on in the comic book. Yeah. He's imposing even without his dick hanging even out? without his dick hanging out, that's right. <laughs> okay. I, I feel like uh, Valentine's character design is a little fluid. 
Yeah, I no, have... she definitely looks super lean on some pages and very chubby on other pages. Yeah, and she has sort of big poopy hair that is dyed purple, I think. But a lot of the time it comes off as gray and she looks a lot like an old woman. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that his his art is very dynamic. Like he, he does a good job in panels like this one where there's like lots of people in action poses. Yeah. You know, but it's also there's just something kind of sketchy or cartoony about it to me that takes me out of things a little bit. I definitely think there's there's cartooniness and I think that's deliberate as we see like ludicrous over-the-top violence played out with what are frankly ridiculous concepts <laughs> the room is full of mummy assassins like and that's not even played that's not played a little bit for horror yeah I, I, well when i was reading batman the shadow i just remember that i consistently thought like this is a silly looking joker he's got a <laughs> silly look he's got a silly looking character design for the joker and it's gonna be a silly looking joker for six issues interesting and does he have his mouth like open all the time like the distended jaw smile no Uh, i wouldn't say that was the problem and does he turn into a turkey man at some point in the plot i don't know what you're talking about okay do you remember in batman ninja turtles when joker turned himself into a bird man oh right yeah yeah the art in that was much better than the art in batman shadow all right this is silly in a different way yeah okay anything else to say about deathbed number one there's an interesting page, two or three pages from the beginning of the book. It has a, a double splash title page, which is fairly weird. Yeah, that's a really weird use of your space. Yeah, and what that is used for is you have the title taking up a big chunk of the center of the two pages and then splashed all around it. Various images depicting weird shit that apparently Antonio has done in his life. All dated. Yeah, it's like throughout the history of the 20th century. In 1947, here he is as a painter, a French painter. In 1980, here's a zombie skull with a knife stuck in it, etc. Yeah. Yeah, um, he, he definitely has this, like, rich history. And I wonder if this book is actually going to explore it in right. any kind of detailed way. Or if it's just going to be kind of brushed off for laughs yeah i think oh undead mummy assassins yeah i think that's a really good point because they could focus primarily on the adventures that he goes on to have now with valentine but this page sort of promises that there's all kinds of cool stuff in his past that we'll get to find out about yeah well all right that was deathbed number one there is actually a piece of news that i think we should cover before we wrap up for this week have you heard about sandman universe I have a little. Okay, so Sandman Universe is a new line of comics that's going to be launching in August from the Vertigo imprint. It's four titles. Right now it looks like House of Whispers, written by Nalo Hopkinson, Books of Magic, written by Cat Howard, The Dreaming, written by Cy Spurrier, and Lucifer, written by Dan Waters. Okay, so Lucifer and The Dreaming have already been comics. And it'll be interesting to see where they go with that, obviously. Cy uh, Spurrier is an interesting choice for dreaming, having written the Legion book, as we talked about, right? Yeah, yeah. Not the one that's running now. Okay. There's a book that's just called Legion that's running now. And that's not Cy Spurrier, I don't believe. Oh, yeah. I mean, actually, it was X-Men Legacy starring Legion. Right. Yeah. He also wrote Motherlands. Yes, that's right. We which talked we about, talked about not at all yet. <laughs> 
<laughs> we talked about sometime in the past or future. <laughs> uh, the... In, the, in the 90s, I wanted to be Cable, and now I'm confused about my own personal timeline. So that's a win. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> so... <laughs> So yeah, uh, House of Whispers appears to be some kind of spinoff to House of Secrets, House of Mystery. There's now a third house. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's a book, like you said, by Cy Spurrier called The Dreaming, which seems like it's going to largely be, I mean, just based on the title, it seems like it's going to largely be a sequel to Sandman. I mean, the Sandman book is very much about the dreaming, so. Yeah, well, there's sort of an interesting story there. I don't remember if I've told this one on the podcast or told this one to you before, but I will mention this, that apparently part of his contract when he started the Sandman series, Neil Gaiman asked that it be allowed to end when he was done with it. When he finished writing the Sandman, there would be no more Sandman. It wouldn't pass to somebody else. The series would end with him. Right. And and there hasn't been since the conclusion of it, except for sequels written by him himself, like Sandman... Is Sandman the Dreaming one of them, or... Sandman Overture is one of them. Yeah, Sandman Overture, which is actually sort of a prologue to the to the main series. I guess you could call it an overture. Uh, as well as the, the Endless Night stories, the Death stories. But there was a series, there was a spinoff series called The Dreaming that he did not write, which told the adventures of other characters like Matthew. Oh, okay. Uh, other Dreaming characters for... I, I think it ran for another 75 issues. And this seems to be kind of a successor to that. Interesting. So what's your feeling on Sandman Universe? Are you going to, you know, add all those books to your pull list? <laughs> My pull list is very short at the moment. No, oh, that's appropriate. Oh, God damn it. <laughs> and then Books of Magic, of course, is something that we haven't checked out. That's a sort of coming-of-age magic story that also explicitly takes place in the DC universe. The main character's mentors include Zatanna and Constantine. Oh, that's neat. Yeah. So yeah, what's your what's your verdict on Sandman universe as far as what we know about it so far? I mean, I'm going to keep a weather eye on it. I think that the original Sandman run is obviously like, stands on its own as a complete thing. But it'd certainly be interesting to see where this goes. Well, all right. That's... <laughs> That's I'm our... sorry, that was a non-answer. <laughs> well, it was a bit of a non-answer answer. Well, if I... I dare speak for you, I think that we can safely say that The Dreaming by Cy Spurrier is something that Sean wants to read. I'm interested in that. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. That does sound cool to me. And I'm remaining cautiously optimistic, even though I feel that the original run, even though it needs no supplement, it brooks supplement. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's our show for this week, folks. On our next Preacher episode, Cassidy returns to the Big Easy and looks up some old familiar faces. Next week, we'll be getting into Sandman Special, number one, The Song of Orpheus. Hey, if you like our show, you should check out our website at vertigize.blueberry.com. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. We've got lots more episodes, plus show notes on every episode. If you want to get in touch with us, and we would love it if you do... You can reach us on Twitter, at Vertiguys. I am on Twitter, at BlankCastSean. We are also available through email. That's Vertiguys at gmail.com. And we have a Facebook page at Facebook.com slash If you listen to the show on iTunes or the Apple Podcasts app, you could leave us a rating or review. That's a great way to spread the word. But as always, thanks so much for listening. Thanks, everybody. So, I mean, here's the thing, right? Catwoman 
is a criminal. Batman shouldn't date criminals, right? I mean, like, technically speaking, Batman's a criminal. Oh, that's, that's true. I mean, he just beat the hell out of people. Then you're not allowed to do that. No. But let me, let me just say this. If Catwoman kills people, as she sometimes does, as she's been known to do, and Batman never kills anybody, not mm-hmm. even the Joker, right? Right. So if he falls in love with a woman who kills people, if he loves her anyway, doesn't that mean that all of the poor people that he beats the living hell out of is personal dislike, not a matter of principle? Well, I don't know that we've established that Catwoman does kill people, first of all. I mean, except for the, whatever it is, 417 people. What? (laughs) That's a lot of people! So if you read the Tom King run, there's a whole plot point of, like, Catwoman copped to some huge amount of murders. And it turns out that they were all done by Holly. That's a lot of people for Holly to have killed. She's like a teenager. Yeah, yeah. But that's beside the point. <laughs> okay, so she copped the 417 murders she didn't commit. Yeah. I thought she killed, like, Black Mask or something. Really recently. No, not that I know of. Okay. Black Mask was in Red Hood and the Outlaws. Yeah. At the beginning of the Rebirth era. And I was reading it at the beginning of the Rebirth era. But I, I have not been keeping up with that book. Okay. So it's possible that I guess that she killed Red Hood. But it would have been in Red Hood. She killed Red Red Hood. No, she didn't. She killed Black Mask. (laughs) It's possible that she killed Black Mask in that book, and I didn't know it, but I don't think so. You can't kill Red Hood again. Not without taking another vote. 